Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. Today on the show, Hillary Clinton. The 2016 Democratic candidate for president talks to me about her opponent, Donald J. Trump. Such a nasty one. And his three-plus years so far in the White House. We've done, I think, more than any president. He has made some very serious missteps as president. She also shares her thoughts on the 2020 Democratic candidates who are still standing, one of whom will be Donald Trump's opponent this time. What Joe's victories on Super Tuesday showed is that he is building the kind of coalition that I had. Also, the former Secretary of State talks about the coronavirus, Afghanistan, and on International Women's Day, the state of women in the United States and the world. There still is something inside that when a woman says, wait a minute, I'd like to lead, little unconscious alarm bells start to ring. But first, here's my take. Medical experts are trying to map out the health effects of coronavirus. Economists are estimating its economic fallout. Yet predicting its broader political consequences is likely to be the biggest challenge of all. It's possible the virus will quickly be contained and we'll all move on. But if it persists, this epidemic could accelerate a major political shift. In several countries, the populist right is trying to blame the contagion on open borders and migrants. In reality, the disease has spread internationally mostly by travelers and tourists. Impoverished asylum seekers don't usually get on board cruise ships, but that hasn't stopped politicians from trying to exploit the crisis. Italy's firebrand Matteo Salvini railed against the government for continuing to allow in migrants from Africa though there are very few cases of coronavirus on that entire continent. In the United States, the scurrilous attacks have been directed mostly against China. They're eating raw bats and snakes. They are a very hungry people. The Chinese (laughs) communist government cannot feed the people. Really? Tom Cotton, one of Donald Trump's staunchest allies in the Senate, suggested that the virus might have originated in a high-security biochemical lab in China. In the 1980s, I remember when the far left trafficked in rumors about HIV having been invented in CIA labs. The far right has now found its own virus conspiracy theory. But we closed President Trump, for his part, fuels the, the fears by emphasizing how the disease came from China and how he heroically saved American lives by closing the border in late January to people coming from China. In fact, public health officials stress the importance of comprehensive public health systems that can safely and speedily test lots of people, isolate and provide care to those infected, and issue clear guidelines for the rest of us. Things have now ramped up in America, but the process has been far too slow 
in large part because Trump eliminated the White House's pandemic chain of command in 2018. It would have been even worse if his proposed budget cuts for the CDC and other agencies had actually gone through. Coronavirus is also wreaking havoc with trade. We are already in a phase of deglobalization, as shown by the slowdown in world trade. Some of these shifts are a natural rebalancing after decades of accelerating globalization. But will they be more than that? It'll all depend on politics and politicians. If people's fears can be exaggerated and manipulated, it's possible to imagine the world heading further down a path of tariffs, walls, and barriers. The historian Angus Madison found that after the last great era of globalization broke down with the onset of World War I, trade and immigration flows were depressed for three decades. In many ways, we still do live in a world of pervasive globalization, especially in the digital economy. According to a Bloomberg report, trade in services has risen by about 50% over the last 10 years. Royalties and licensing fees, an indication of the spread of information, technology, and entertainment worldwide, are up about 60%. While migration flows have actually remained stable over the last decade, travel has continued to expand dramatically year after year. You see, we humans want to have contact with the rest of the planet. The solution to problems of a global age can only be global. Better information, communication, and coordination across the world. No one country can stop an epidemic by itself. International collaboration is crucial. Sadly, it's far easier to peddle fear and hate and explain that it all began because the Chinese eat raw bats. For more, go to cnn.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Let's get right to my guest this week, Hillary Clinton. I will, of course, talk to her about the 2020 presidential race and the current occupant of the White House. But since I started with coronavirus and since it has the world on edge, that is where I will start with her as well. Hillary Clinton, pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much, Fareed. So Donald Trump says there have been 100,000 cases uh, of the coronavirus worldwide, and yet just a very small number in the United States. Um, should he get credit for that? <laughs> I don't think that anybody should get credit for that. We are a long way from knowing how this will all play out. It's really just beginning. Let us all hope that the numbers stay low, the fatalities stay as low as possible. Uh, but what I'm worried about is the attitude that has been taken by uh, the president himself and his administration trying to downplay the risk, not being prepared, initially pushing the experts out of the picture. Now, thankfully, they're back in and able to not only talk to the public, but help to better manage how we are responding. He, uh, the president has said that some, there are some things the Obama administration did uh, that he questions. He says that uh, the Obama administration didn't handle the swine flu uh, well, he talks about how it changed some of the parameters of testing. Well, what do you think? Well, I don't think the facts support uh, that uh, uh, assessment. In fact, what we do know is that 
the SARS epidemic, which happened in the very beginning of the Obama administration, because I was Secretary of State at the time, uh, really was a, a full court press by the administration uh, to be sure that at every level, not only national, state and local, but globally, the United States was part of the response. Uh, the Centers for Disease Control had been given the responsibility under the Obama administration to uh, be vigilant and try to get ahead of where viruses like this were formulating, especially if they were animal-to-people transmission uh, viruses. So there was a lot that was done under the Obama administration. And in fact, the Trump administration uh, severely cut back the CDC budget cut back on this program of overseas vigilance. But I don't think it's a time to point fingers, whether it's from the past or from the present. What people should expect is that everybody from their president on down is focused on one thing, not on name calling and blame placing, but how are we going to make sure that we prevent the spread of this virus in as much as that is possible and be sure that we support state and local uh, health officials, particularly on the front lines, doctors, nurses, and others, so that they are fully equipped and ready to take care of those people who get seriously ill. I think the experts have all told us that there are probably many, many people walking around with the virus by now, that it has been transmitted in many places of the country already. Many of them will not get sick or will get only mildly sick um, others, it will be a, a more acute experience. And so we've got to be sure that we're prepared to take care of those who get uh, really sick. Um, another big thing that's happened re uh, recently is the deal with the Taliban. Mm. Um, you were Secretary of State dealing with exactly this issue. What do you think of the deal from what we know of it? Well, I think what's more important is what do the Afghan people and their government think of the deal? And uh, they were pretty much cut out of the negotiations uh, immediately after it was signed between the United States and the Taliban uh, in Doha. Uh, the Afghan government, which has been elected to represent the Afghan people, said they did not agree with the very large prisoner release that had been included in the agreement. Uh, there was supposed to be a cessation of hostilities. Apparently, that did not hold, and American forces were part of bombing a couple of sites in recent days where the Taliban had resumed fighting. So I think it's difficult to have a peace agreement when you leave out the government of the country that you are expecting to uphold and live under the peace agreement. When you look at the broader region, um, are you worried that we are on a, um, on a path toward greater conflict with Iran? Because the, the tension has, is mounted, the sanctions are on Iran, the Iranian economy is being strangled, but there is no negotiation going on. Mm. I think it was a very serious error of the Trump administration to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal. Um, I started the negotiations on that. We were uh, determined to put a lid on the nuclear weapons program uh, of Iran, and we did. Now, I can understand uh, a new administration might come in uh, and say, we don't think you got a good enough deal. We want to make it even better. I would argue with that, but I can understand it. And 
because of that, we want to reopen negotiations to add even more elements to this deal. But that's not what they did. What they did was to say it's a terrible deal. We're pulling out. So what has happened? We now know that Iran has gone back to uh, enriching uranium. Uh, It appears they have increased their stocks of highly enriched uranium, putting them closer to the development of a weapon. That doesn't make anybody safer. And while they are doing that, there are no discussions, as far as I know, going on. Iran is also facing a real crisis with uh, the coronavirus that has hit its people and its leadership uh, very hard. There could be an opportunity to try to open some doors for cooperation. Um, None of that is happening. So what is happening as a result of what I think was a quite short-sighted decision on the part of the Trump administration? They're getting closer to a nuclear weapon, which to me is a disastrous uh, development because of what it will mean in the region and the encouragement it will give to others to pursue a weapon as well. Next on GPS, Hillary Clinton says she warned America about how bad a President Donald Trump would be. Now she says it's worse than she imagined. Back in a moment with that. When you look at the Trump administration, we're now three years in. Um, You were campaigning against somebody who had never held any government Mm -hmm. office. Um, And you were worried and you sounded the alarm. Honestly, do you think it has been as bad as you thought it would be? It's actually been worse, Fareed, because when he was elected, I did hold out hope that despite all of the um, the rhetoric, the bombast and everything we heard in the campaign, that the job has a way of encouraging people to grow into it, to accept the awesome responsibilities uh, that one has. But when I heard his inaugural speech, uh, the divisiveness of it, the continuing to set Americans against Americans, the language of carnage in the streets, I knew that he had no intention of trying to be the president for the entire country. He was still very much focused on those who he had brought into his base. And I think as a result, he has made some very serious um, uh, missteps as president. And you think it hasn't gotten better over time? Well, the economy that he inherited was on the right track, and it was important that it remain on the right track. Um, I'm worried, though, that we have seen some uh, unfortunate detours, for example, with um, the trade uh, embargoes and trade wars that he's engaged in, and the failure to make any investments for the future. The big tax cuts have not produce the kind of big investments that are going to make us richer and safer and stronger. Uh, We were talking a minute ago about the virus. You know, there's a lot we should be doing to invest in infrastructure here and around the world to protect us against uh, the spread of disease. With climate change, a lot of disease is going to move further and further north out of tropical climes and are going to be posing threats to us. We're not thinking about the future. And it's all transactional, what's in it for the president and his allies, his cronies, and his re-election. The thing I'm struck about is when he attacks you or Democrats, it's always, um, it's about 
the, the character of the person. It's very personal. Um, so he's asked by Sean Hannity, what do you think of Mike Bloomberg? Michael Bloomberg. And he just goes on about how uh, short he is. Very little. Which is actually not even that true. He's 5'8". Yeah, um, but and that he wanted a box for the debates, which, of course, again, mm -hmm. is not true. But he is trying to get at something very simple, you know, mm -hmm. and, and th that goes to somebody's character. I mean, a sleepy Joe or, or, mm -hmm. or uh, you know, with mini new crooked, real crooked yeah. Hillary, mm -hmm. uh, mini Mike. Mm -hmm. um, not always rooted in, in anything, but in, somehow he, he is effective in making that work. Should Democrats be mimicking that? I think there's a real problem because when Democrats do, uh, they get punished. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, if you criticize someone personally or on a character basis on the right, it's just part of the landscape. It's how you win elections. It's who you are. And, and he's perfected the art of the uh, smear. And if you're on the other side of the political divide, um, most of the people who think and work and vote over there really don't like that. They aren't comfortable with it. They don't think it's the right thing to do. Uh, so it's difficult to thread the needle. Um, so I do think there are enough criticisms to make about him uh, that you don't have to resort to that kind of name calling. There was an article in Vox, I don't know if you saw it, on Super Tuesday mm. on Facebook, the single most searched uh, article, uh, the, the single most mm -hmm. uh, searched news topic was Hillary Clinton's emails. That's right. I saw that. Think, what do you think make about, about it? Well, I'll tell you what I make of it, is that Fox and the sort of right-wing echo chamber has mastered Facebook, aided and abetted, might I say, by Facebook. So I read that article, and what that said to me was, here at Super Tuesday, the Democrats are trying to decide who they want to nominate against Donald Trump. The coronavirus is spreading. We now have more and more reports from different places in the country. But led by Fox News and Breitbart and others, it's going to be about my emails, a, a totally you know, bogus, finished, nonsense uh, attack on me. Because they know how not only to drive those stories under the radar screen where the mainstream press like yourself are covering, you know, what's happening now, but they know how to deliver those stories through the algorithms into the feeds of millions and millions of people. So I, I begrudgingly give them a lot of credit because they are shaping a narrative that is part of the uh, messaging around Trump's reelection, around people who challenge Trump, changing the subject all of the time. You know, they're not interested or even worried about Trump saying that the coronavirus is a hoax. They don't want their listeners, their viewers, you know, the people that they're frankly feeding this um, other narrative to, to be focused on that. Well, what's one of the ways to get them? They, you know, I live rent-free in all their heads, as you know, Fareed. So what's one of the ways to get them diverted from the mistakes Trump is making in handling the coronavirus? Well, let's bring up Hillary's emails again. 
very clever, very diabolical, very destructive to uh, the kind of uh, fact-based uh, environment and particularly news environment that uh, is necessary for a democracy to function. Next on GPS, Secretary Clinton on Bernie Sanders versus Joe Biden. Does she have an endorsement to make? You'll see. If Bernie Sanders is the Democratic nominee, will you campaign for him? I will support the nominee of the Democratic Party. But will you campaign for him? I don't know if he would ask me to campaign for him, Fareed, because I have no idea what he is uh, thinking about for a general election campaign. As I've said many times, I do not think he's our strongest uh, nominee against Donald Trump. Is that uh, an endorsement of Joe Biden? I'm not endorsing. Uh, There's nobody left. Well, I, mean, I guess that's true. There isn't anybody here. left. But I think uh, what, uh, what Joe's victories on Super Tuesday showed is that he is building the kind of coalition that I have, basically. It's a broad-based coalition. I finished, you know, most of the work I needed to do for the nomination on Super Tuesday, and then it kind of lingered on. And I think Joe is on track to doing exactly the same thing, putting together a coalition of voters who are energized. You looked at those numbers. People are turning out. And they're turning out to try to pick the person they think would be the best president, but also the person uh, as our nominee who would most likely be able to beat Trump. And clearly the Trump campaign and Trump himself know who they don't want to run against and know who they do want to run against. Um, one of the challenges you had was unifying the party, particularly the Bernie Sanders wing of the party. Um, do you think Joe Biden will be able to do that better? Is Bernie Sanders more likely to be more cooperative this time around? Well, I hope so, because his his failure and the behavior of a lot of his top aides and certainly many of his supporters um, up to the convention, at the convention and even up to uh, Election Day uh, was not helpful. Uh, I had thought we would unify. That's what we'd always done before, and that's what I expected. Uh, I certainly tried to do that when I ran against Barack Obama and, and worked very hard for him. So I don't know what his plans or the people around him are planning. Um, I can only hope that they understand we all have to have a singular goal of defeating Donald Trump. There is nothing more important. Four years of his uh, presidency is going to leave enough damage, uh, damage to our institutions, to the rule of law, to the expertise of our government on everything from climate change to coronavirus uh, pandemics. We cannot even imagine the damage that would be done by four more years of this kind of behavior. So I hope that... Um, the, the people, including Sanders himself, who uh, have worked hard to get the nomination, uh, if they are not successful, uh, will close ranks with the rest of us. You know him. You, you've, you've, you've dealt with him for a long time. Do you think he's the kind of person who will wholeheartedly support Joe Biden? I hope so. I mean, he's known Joe Biden longer than he's known me and has had in the past very nice things to say about uh, Vice President Biden. Uh, and I hope that he doesn't want to see uh, further damage inflicted on our institutions and uh, all that that would mean to our democracy. 
Do you think, given that we now have two uh, two men in the late 70s <laughs> running for, uh, for the Democratic nomination, uh, it is essential that uh, the vice president be a woman, the vice presidential candidate be a woman? I'm going to let whoever ends up being the nominee make that decision. There are so many factors that go into it. Personally, I'd love to have a woman on the ticket, finally. Um, Again, we've had two women vice presidential candidates, one for the Democrats, one for the Republicans. But obviously, I'd like to you know, keep that moving and uh, actually have it happen uh, uh, in this election that someone would be the first woman vice president. But whoever the nominee is has to take a really hard look at the Electoral College. What will help on him, because that's who it's down to, what will help him win the Electoral College? Because I think... Our nominee could win the popular vote again, as I did, but that doesn't matter, as we know. Coming up on GPS, Hillary Clinton on the state of women in American society and around the world. Today is International Women's Day, fitting then that my guest was the first female presidential nominee of a major American political party. I wanted to hear her thoughts on the state of women in America and around the world. Do you think that the United States today um, is still um, misogynistic in many aspects of its life? I think that the unconscious biases that uh, exist in our society, in any society, even ones where on paper they've advanced much further uh, with things like paid family leave, for example, paid childcare and the like, to empower women to make their own choices, That still is at work. And the double standard, particularly in public life, and not only in political public life, but business life, uh, the life of the media and the arts and so much else. Yes, there is some absolute misogyny that certainly lives online. I was so appalled to read about a, a sticker that had been made Uh, depicting Greta Thunberg, the young woman who's been trying to sound the alarm about climate change, being uh, literally subjected to a sexual assault, a sticker that was being passed out um, at a a company that is involved in the oil industry in some way. Now, look, I, I understand that we're still fighting over climate change, although that seems somewhat absurd to me. Um, but to fight by objectifying and and having a picture that demonstrated a level of violence toward this young 16-year-old girl who has every right in the world to stand up and say, you know, world, you're not doing what needs to be done. That's misogynistic. That That is not just, you know, I don't agree with her and I don't know why she has a big platform. I want a big platform to, you know, repudiate that. Uh, instead, it's like, Let's show her being assaulted. That's misogyny, pure and simple. So it goes from that kind of overt example of misogyny to these unconscious biases. So we carry with us, it's kind of deep in the DNA, what we expect women to be. And we're okay with kind of opening the doors and and, and allowing our daughters, our granddaughters, you know, to get great educations, compete for great jobs, but there still is something inside that when a woman says, wait a minute, I'd like to lead, 
I'd like to be in charge. I'd like to be your president or your chief executive or whatever it might be. Little alarm bells, little unconscious alarm bells start to ring. There are people who look at the, the persistence uh, of, uh, of feminists, or th- things like Me Too or uh, the cancel culture, and they say, this is spawning a backlash that is electing Donald Trump, that is empowering these kind of forces. Um, is that something to worry about, or is this just a price you have to pay? You know, I think that forward movement, it's a kind of law of physics, will always produce a reaction. So... Whatever the reason might be, there are going to be people who uh, feel that, uh, you know, demanding one's rights or demanding accountability for uh, behavior that is out of bounds uh, is, is somehow inappropriate or has gone too far or is outside the comfort zone. This is all new to society. Everybody is working this out, trying to make sense of it. But I don't think that the process of trying to understand how do we truly respect and value women in the workplace, which is really at root what this is about, uh, without objectifying them, without harassing them, how do we best do that? And if that requires people to be more conscious about their behavior and to think, well, you know, maybe that's not a, a welcome pat on the back or comment you know, okay, that's not a huge price to pay. Um, so this is, this is where we are in this uh, ongoing uh, debate about how best to uh, empower women uh, to be the best they can be under whatever circumstances they find themselves. I think the backlash, which you see in different places around the world, is out of fear. And it's out of a sense of uh, losing control. Uh, in, many, in many countries, you know, women working outside the home is seen as incredibly threatening. Until recently, women driving a car was seen as incredibly threatening. This is happening across the world. And there are lots of both serious and, and kind of amusing ways people are fighting back. So, for example, in Japan, an advanced economy, um, they would have an even higher GDP if they could get their educated women in the workforce. That's very difficult because of the way their family structure works. And so women are often taking care of both the young generation and the older generation without much help because the business culture uh, really consumes most of the day, um, six days a week, of the husbands and providers in those families. So the women who are in the workplace, they're kind of a pioneering set. And there have been a recent couple of uh, controversies because women have said, we don't want to have to wear high heels to work. You know, after a while, it really hurts your back to walk around in those high heels. And as I understand it, the labor minister said, no, employee, employers can demand that you wear high, high heels or we want to wear glasses. You know, some of us can't wear contacts and we can't do our work without wearing our glasses. No, we don't want glasses in the workplace. So trying to govern, even in an advanced society, how women appear says volumes about how women are viewed. So you can go from, you know, the worst circumstances for women where they are still, you know, basically marginalized and shut out 
to advanced economies where they are still viewed as something of an oddity. Uh, and that's what those of us who believe in, in the equality of men and women uh, and the openness of opportunities to men and women based on ability and work ethic and all the rest of it um, are going to have to continue speaking out so that, you know, we don't uh, lose progress and go backwards. Thank you for speaking out here, Hillary Clinton. Pleasure to have you on. Thank you. If my interview leaves you wanting to hear more of Secretary Clinton, there's a new documentary series about her on Hulu. It's called simply Hillary, and it uncovers her life up through the 2016 campaign. Next here on GPS, the Trump administration has spent three years upending American immigration. Now they have just made a major change in the rules that you might not have heard about. That consequential story when we come back. Now for our What in the World segment. If the coronavirus crisis has you worried about the Trump administration's level of competence, let me point to an area where the White House has been astonishingly effective. Immigration. Legal immigration to the United States between 2016 and 2018 fell by more than 11%, not counting refugees, according to an analysis by the National Foundation for American Policy. And it will likely fall more. And this is happening because of strenuous efforts by the administration on a number of fronts. Late last month, a seismic new immigration regulation went into effect, the public charge rule, which makes it much more difficult for immigrants to obtain green cards if they are deemed likely to collect welfare as legal permanent residents. As the New York Times reports, the rule will ask immigration officials to evaluate applicants based on dozens of criteria, including English proficiency, credit scores, and whether they receive Medicaid or food stamps. It's a sort of wealth test for immigrants, and it's a regulation that could reshape legal immigration in the country. The Migration Policy Institute estimates that 69% of the millions of immigrants granted green cards between 2012 and 2016 had at least one negative factor under the new public charge rule. The Institute also finds that the rule would disproportionately impact Latino and Asian immigrants. This rule is actually a drastic expansion of a regulation that has existed in some form for more than a century. And as the former State Department official Christopher Richardson explained in the Washington Post, since its inception, the rule has been discriminatory. First, it was used as a justification to deport poor Irish immigrants in the 19th century. In the 1930s, officials used it to bar Jewish refugees from entering the country. Trump has provoked an outcry with policies like the travel ban or dropping refugee admissions to historic lows, but many changes to immigration policy have gone unnoticed. Last year, the Migration Policy Institute compiled a bulleted list of all the administration's policies surrounding migration. It ran 40 pages. The National Foundation for American Policy estimates that Trump's new rules will have lowered immigration by 30% by 2021. Now, for Trump, this is probably good politics, but it isn't good economics. As Ruchir Sharma wrote in the New York Times, one of the United States' biggest economic advantages over other rich nations is the size and growth of its labor force, a significant component of economic growth. If Trump policies remain in place, average annual labor force growth will be anywhere from 35 to 59 percent lower in the long term, according to the NAPF. 
and that will likely translate into lower economic growth. But a future with drastically lower immigration isn't just bad for growth, it's actually also bad for welfare. That's because, as Vox notes, immigrants of all skill levels contribute to Social Security and Medicare through payroll taxes. An aging population means fewer American-born workers, which means we need immigrants to pay into these systems. That is the great irony of the public charge rule and other policies enacted by this administration. Purportedly, they aim to cull immigrants who leech off the state, but low immigration itself imperils many welfare programs for all Americans. It's just another example of the Trump administration dressing up myopic nativism as patriotism. Dozens of British officials poured into Brussels this week to begin post-Brexit trade talks. They are up against the clock. Negotiators only have until the end of the year to finalize trade rules, labor standards, and even maritime borders. It brings me to my question. How long did the European Union's largest trade deal to date take to negotiate? Nine months, 14 months, 52 months, or 70 months? Stay tuned and we'll tell you the correct answer. My book of the week is Thomas Philippon's The Great Reversal. We had him on the show recently. This is the most important book on economics I've read in a while. It explains how the United States went from being a vibrant free market with low prices for consumers to one in which oligopolies and monopolies abound and consumers get shafted with higher prices. Powerful, persuasive, it should be sent to every member of Congress in Washington. The answer to my GPS challenge this week is D. Japan's deal with the European Union took almost six years to finalize before being implemented last February. After Donald Trump renounced the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Japan and Europe redoubled their efforts to create the world's largest free trade zone. But Britain will not get access to Japan unless it is part of its new deal with the European Union. Now, both the European Union and the UK want a new free trade deal, but reaching that goal will be an uphill battle. Given the EU's geographic proximity and economic interdependence with the UK, the European negotiators demand an equal playing field, meaning British goods must meet the same environmental and labor standards as their European counterparts so as not to undercut them. But London complains that to follow EU rules would be counter to the very point of Brexit, which was to be freed from them. Moreover, the Brits will be simultaneously negotiating a deal with another one of the world's largest markets, the United States. Washington wants Britain to lower its food standards and allow in such American goods as chlorinated chicken and hormone-treated beef. But to do that would complicate Britain's chances of a deal with Europe. It seems that Boris Johnson is stuck between an American rock and a European hard place, and he has 10 months to decide. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.